Welcome to Zero Five O. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Beans have been part of our diets for centuries and varieties such as Black Badger, Split Victor and Kalin have been grown in the UK since the Iron Age, but they rarely attract the attention they deserve. Josiah Meldrum is my guest today and is co-founder of Hodmadods, a company leading the way in growing, supplying and promoting British beans. As more of a search for sources of plant-based protein, I'm excited to hear how Hodmadods have their finger on the pulse of the British bean scene. Welcome to Zero Five Verge, Josiah. Hi, it's Bruce. It's pleasure to be here and I'm really looking forward to sharing the, the bean love. <laughs> Excellent. And and I know you sell other things as well, but I just really wanted to focus on the bean scene um, so I could, I could get my terrible pun in about uh, having your finger on the pulse. So there we go. I do apologize for that. You heard yeah. it a million times. Yeah, like we love a pun. So. <laughs> um, so we'll get straight in there. What is um, a Hodmadod and why you call Hodmadods? I don't think anyone will have heard of this name before. I, yeah, it's possible, unless you're in Norfolk or Suffolk. So it's a dialect word uh, in this part of the world. And it, it means, depending on whether you're from Norfolk or Suffolk, hedgehog or snail, or possibly uh, a small curled up thing. And it's it's part of a whole kind of suite of, of dialect words that are disappearing from our language. And Nick, William and I, who founded Hobmadod, we really love that kind of the sort of cultural identity of East Anglia and who we are and where we came from. And so using a traditional word as the name for our business seemed really fitting. And it was only later that we kind of realised that actually we were selling things that were small, curled up things, a bit like the meaning of the word hobmatod. So, yeah, I think I think it also means a scarecrow in Berkshire, but I'm not entirely sure about that. And it's a lovely word as well. And it sort of actually uh, rolls off the tongue very nicely, unlike some of the sort of uh, Yorkshire words that I'm always putting into things like... Uh clarty and midden and uh, etc but it's a lovely it's a lovely word uh, so that's good thanks for that so turning to beans where are we beans really are they are they lost and been put in a tin and and smothered in red sauce and neglected or is there a renaissance in beans and, and why are they so important to you i think there is a renaissance but i think there wasn't sort of 10 or 15 years ago when we first started looking at them it, particularly in the uk we are per capita we are some of the lowest consumers of pulses, that's beans, peas, lentils, chickpeas, in the world. And as you absolutely rightly say, the one way that we do love eating them is covered in red sauce. And we are, per capita, probably the biggest consumers of baked beans in the world, which is quite extraordinary. And for you know, for 2,000 years, beans, in particular, a small, round relative of the broad bean called the fava bean, was the thing that sustained us. It kept us going through the winter when we didn't have access to meat and dairy. Um, and it was a store of protein uh, and other nutrients that was really, really critical. And we kind of got rich, as is happening in a lot of the world now, in fact, and our diets changed and we moved much more to a to a meaty dairy based diet for our protein because those were higher status foods. You know, they they identified you as as wealthier and more affluent. So beans as a rather humble food kind of lost their place in our diet. Is, is the UK temperate clients a good place to grow beans? Because we sort of, I don't know why, but I always sort of think that baked beans are associated or beans are associated with being grown in other countries. Is it is it a good place to grow beans? Did fava beans fall out of popularity because they were, when we started trading, they were easier to import from other lands? No. Uh, so there are beans that 
are from the new world uh, and that would be the beans that you might have in your in your baked beans and they're generally grown now around the great lakes area of north america but the beans that we can grow best here are the fava beans and they came to the uk in the iron age from the fertile crescent with those early settled farmers and uh, they grow brilliantly here they're really well adapted to northern europe and in fact the uk grows somewhere between half a million and 600,000 tons a year of which about 25 or 30 percent go straight to North Africa, where they're a huge part of the kind of cultural tradition and cuisine, and the balance are fed to animals. Wow! So we feed, we're growing these amazing food sources and then just feeding them straight to animals. Essentially, yeah. And farmers farmers like growing them because they're an important what's called a break crop. So they provide a, a disease break within the rotation. So if you're growing cereals, if you do that continuously, you'll have disease problems. And they also do this amazing thing, which is that they they pull nitrogen down out of the atmosphere and working with soil-borne organisms, they fix that nitrogen into what essentially is fertilizer. So they, they fertilize themselves, but at the same time, they leave free available nitrogen in the soil that other plants can use. So that might be the following crop, or it might be another crop that's grown with the beans if you're, if you're bi-cropping, growing two crops simultaneously. So they're quite an extraordinary crop, and they have a really important role to play in sustainable rotations of crops on farms, but also in bringing carbon down into the soil and doing all those things that we know we need to do in order to change the way that we produce our food. And are, are all bean species nitrogen fixing? So do they, if, irrespective of the type of bean, do they all draw down nitrogen fix it in the soil or do you have to take certain species of um, beans to do that? All, it's, it's, a, it's a trick that every plant in that genus, so all of those legumes, as it were, can do that. So as well as the beans and peas that we might harvest to eat, there are also legumes that farmers use in rotations to fulfill that nitrogen fixing role. So clover and things like that will also be fixing nitrogen and, and helping uh, reduce reliance on synthetic uh, nitrogen fertilizers. And so the good, the, the, the bean is good for the soil and the next year and the year after that's crop using it as a, as a break crop and as a, a crop to fix nitrogen and enhance the health of the soil. But are, are beans good for the climate crisis? Are they, good, are they, are they going to help us work our way out of the climate emergency that we're in now? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no one answer to the climate emergency. And I think it's really tempting to look for quick fixes. But correcting and adjusting the way we, we manage the land, particularly for farmed crops, is a really significant part of that because soil can be this amazing carbon sink. And avoiding using synthetic fertilisers, but instead using nitrogen that's drawn down from the atmosphere will be a really important part of that process. So nitrogen, which is applied to crops broadly all around the world now, uh, is responsible for, depending on which figures you look at, somewhere between 4 and 5% of global man-made carbon emissions. So the energy that's used to produce nitrogen fertilizer through something called the Harbour-Bosch process is incredibly energy intensive. And if we can move to a rotational form of producing crops that doesn't necessarily rely on that process quite so much, then we can just on that fertilizer impact reduce our, our carbon emissions. And that's fertilizer for the listeners that don't know that's actually made out of oil through the Harbour-Bosch process. Is that right? It's, yeah, it's natural gas, essentially. But yeah, right, it's, 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 it's exactly that. Yeah. Because we've been putting fertilizer on, we've been top dressing, we've been interseasonal dressing um, farmland, as you say, around the world for decades now. 
And if we went back to a rotational system, would we get enough nitrogen fixed into the into the land, or do we need to accept that we're going to get lower yields if we use natural uh, rotation? I think there's a whole really big question about the system change that we need to see in order to correct for or adjust our kind of impact on the world around us. And at the moment, yield is the measure of agricultural success. And yield is the only measure of agricultural success, largely speaking. And farmers are always chasing yield, mainly because they trade on a commodity market where it's the only variable they can control because the global market remains the same per tonne price wise, and all the input costs are fixed. So they're, they're constantly chasing yield. But actually, we do produce enough food. And I think this is a big fundamental question that a lot of that food is thrown away. A lot of it is wasted in supply chains that that allow that food to deteriorate. We don't get food to consumers quickly enough or effectively enough, particularly in the majority world. And it's a real issue. And just putting more fertilizer on and increasing yield is not an answer to that broader problem. So the question really is, how do we broadly change the way in which we produce, transport, store <laughs> food? rather than just focusing on that one input that's going to solve the problems by increasing yield. It's, a, it's very similar, and, and the energy source is the same, really, which is we have an energy crisis now whereby we just keep producing more and more energy, but we're not insulating our homes. When we've actually probably got enough energy, we just need to manage it better. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think probably it's a very similar situation. And, and I, I suspect there will be situations where synthetic fertilizers will be used, but they can be used a lot more precisely and a lot more carefully. And, um, and you know, we can maximize the output from that and, and reduce not just the, the climate impact that those fertilizers have. And there are three main macronutrients that plants need. So it's not just nitrogen, it's potassium and phosphate or phosphorus as well. N, P and K are the main fertilizers. And all of those come from mineral sources and they're all uh, energy intensive and produce waste products, both in manufacture, but also uh, in runoff. So eutrophication of you know deltas and and dead zones in in the coastal waters around big agricultural areas you can really see that uh in north america you know around the deltas going out into the gulf of mexico and things you know there's huge issues there with nitrogen runoff coming out of the mississippi and just killing everything in the water and our sort of you've you've taken the listeners to foreign lands are soya beans are they a bean as well or are they something that's called a soya bean where uh, we we sort of have soya oil in 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 many different sort of foods and products and we hear of rainforests being chopped down to grow them in malaysia is that a bean as well or is that something that's called a bean and it's actually something else it is a bean. It's a legume as well. Complicatedly, it's not generally classed as a pulse because we don't eat it as a dry product. We tend to process it in some way. So it's seen as an, it's viewed as an oil seed crop. Huge areas are grown, as you say, in often in deforested parts of the world. It's pressed for the oil, which generally goes for human consumption and sometimes goes for industrial uses. And the byproduct of that pressed uh, soya, the soya meal, is is more often than not fed to livestock. So there's this, there's this very close connection between human consumption, soya oils, and animal feed, soya meals. So often, there's a rather complicated narrative that you'll hear on social media and things is that, you know, vegans are killing the planet because they're planting soya. And the vegans will say, well, meat eaters are killing the planet because of all this soya that's being produced. Actually, 
both parties are kind of equally <laughs> kind of responsible for that because it's being produced for both both sides of the food system. And is there a pulse that we could with that sort of level of oil content that we could grow in temperate climates or is the warmer climate associated with the uh, sort of oil rich pulses? It is possible to grow pulses. They're grown in, in Central Europe and they are grown in the UK on a very small scale, but it is it is difficult to do here. They're not particularly well adapted to our climate. Brilliant. And then before we get on to Hodmerdods and actually, you know, what why you set the business up and what you did, um, I just want to sort of clear one thing out really, which is my family asks me this all the time about saying they need to eat meat to get enough protein. If we eat beans and other plant-based sources of protein, is there enough protein in them or do we need meat? Is there more or less protein in 100 grams of beef versus beans versus 100 grams of beef? Can you clear that up for us once and for all? So I think in, in the West over the last probably over the last 10 years, we've become particularly obsessed with protein. Actually, we don't need a huge amount of protein every day in our diets, unless you're a bodybuilder or an athlete, you know, it's not a huge amount of protein. And pulses, beans, contain almost all of the essential amino acids. Those are the amino acids we can't make in our own bodies that we need to, that we need to consume from elsewhere. And then our bodies can make up all the other amino acids from those essential amino acids. So they, they contain almost all of them, but not quite. And the way that you get your complete suite of essential amino acids is simply by eating your beans with a grain, because the grain contains a complementary, but also slightly deficit set of essential amino acids. So all of those amazing traditional dinners that you might have or meals that you might eat, whether it's um, whether it's kind of burritos with refried beans and a, and a corn tortilla, or whether it's um, chapatis and dal, or whether it's um, full madame and bread in Egypt, all of those traditional foods around the world have that fantastic combination of amino acids, which makes the meal complete for all the protein that you might need. And what about beans on toast? Oh, have we killed all the good stuff by processing them? No, no, it's all still there. I mean, there's a lot of sugar in them, but beans on toast is actually an amazing meal. It's a complete food. So you're getting all of the amino acids you might need uh, in that plate full of food. It's, a, it's, it's quite, a, quite a wonderful thing. <laughs> that, that, well, that's good to know. It's some processed food that hasn't been completely, uh, <laughs> complete, completely ruined. That's good to know. Um, so just so that, that sort of the context of beans is fantastic. Tell me how on earth you got into beans and pulses and grains and setting up Hodmanods and what does the what what is the business doing? Are you growing or are you are you reselling or growing and reselling? Yeah, so we are uh, we're an enabler really and a facilitator. So we're working with farmers and we have a group of twenty five or thirty farmers who we work with most years, who are producing a range of crops, beans, but also uh, things like quinoa, chia, camelina cereals a whole host that make up a more diverse rotation and we help them with the route to market with the processing uh with knowledge transfer and exchange within that group and the whole thing really grew out of uh, a community project in norwich that nick saltmarsh william hudson and i uh, worked on between 2008 and 2012 where we were we were asked we, at the time we were we were all part of a, a small non-governmental organisation in Norfolk called East Anglia Food Link that had been working on sustainable food systems for sort of ten or fifteen years everything from public procurement and getting better local food into schools through to supporting farmers in organic conversion through to helping establish farmers markets uh, through to advocacy work with Defra you know a whole host of different food related projects 
And um, and this community group, Transition Norwich, said to us, you know, would a city the size of Norwich be able to feed itself from the land around and about? Could we design a diet and a food system that would be less dependent on fossil fuels and those resources? And and could we design something that's resilient in terms of our health and welfare and well-being and the local economy? It's a really exciting kind of thought experiment. And we created this ridiculous Excel workbook <laughs> with, you know, land use types, macro and micronutrient requirements, existing cropping patterns, all of these things. Took it to the Norwich group and they said, yeah, 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 that looks great. How do we do it? <laughs> because the truth is we could feed Norwich from its hinterland and we, we wouldn't necessarily need to compromise Norfolk's really important role in feeding the rest of the UK uh, and also some of the rest of the world. And we, we, we realised that there were really three areas that we could focus on that hadn't been focused on previously. One of those was horticulture and the missing market gardens that would once have ringed the city and supplied fresh fruit and veg into restaurants and homes and markets, all completely gone. You know, it's valuable building land. And so that, that has disappeared. And all of our vegetable comes from Lincolnshire or more likely from Spain. We realised that there was this also this this huge hidden element, which was those crops that are combined, that are harvested once a year, dry in the field. So wheat and beans and all of those kind of crops. And where Norwich once had mills all down the river that were producing the flour to make the bread, that had all gone. They were all kind of luxury flats and, and shopping opportunities. And all the grain that was grown on the edge of the city was going off to big plant bakeries, who knows where, and being turned into sliced bread and then coming back into the supermarkets, completely detached from where it was produced, to the point where even the farmers didn't really know whether it would be going for feed or bread or bioethanol or what was going to happen to their wheat. It just left the farm in 28-ton loads. And then the final bit was this, as I said previously, this this idea of the, the vegetable protein that we need to get into our diets, but also the important role of pulses in a more sustainable crop rotation. So we thought we'd work on those three areas. And the, the bread and the flour was very straightforward and we could engage with a local baker and make nice bread and demonstrate to people that this was possible. We set up a, a community supported agriculture scheme on the edge of the city. So that's where a group of people uh, 150 families, in fact, come together to grow their own vegetables on land that's, you know, they can get engaged with that whole process and understand a bit more about vegetable production. And the bit that I think terrified us was the idea of encouraging people in Norwich to eat beans. We felt that was a, <laughs> that was a step too yeah. far. That was a tall order. Yeah. And we left it right to the end of this project. And, and we went to a farmer and said, look, what have you got? Uh, we need to we need to feed people in Norwich beans. And he said, oh, I've got these beans, though, that are going off to North Africa. You could take some of those, but we don't eat them in this country. They're foreigners food. And it was kind of, what? what is this? And we were kind of aware that these beans were growing, but at the time knew none of the history or, or, or science behind it. And we were just intrigued that there was this food stuff that was leaving the country in, in boats, but that didn't get eaten here. So we, we, we bought some, a couple of tonnes. We, we packed them up at William's kitchen table, put a little postage paid postcard into the front of the pack, which essentially said what they were. What did you do with them? Did you enjoy them? You know, what should we do next? And got them out through box schemes in shops. Uh, we gave some away, just got them out across Norwich. And the postcards just started to initially trickle back. And then they started to flood back in with people saying, 
can't believe it. I've, you know, this is crop that I just was not aware of. This is food that I've discovered there are all these recipes for all over the world, except not here. Where can I buy more? And that was kind of where Hobmadod was born. And the fava beans then, they were just the, the, the ones that are grown for livestock food that can just be grow, eaten straight away by humans. There's no different sort of uh, species or anything. No, no different species. There are varieties that have, you know, different flavor profiles and, you know, different benefits, but largely it's exactly the same, exactly the same crop. And did you, have you had any resistance from farmers? Um, did they find it hard to grow beans or have you got lots of farmers on board who are keen to grow? So initially, I mean, right at the beginning of the beans project in Norwich, we we thought we'd have to persuade farmers to grow really difficult beans, you know, like lentils and chickpeas, which we have, sub- have subsequently done. But then it was it was you know it was latterly that it dawned on us that we we already grow these beans and peas in the UK and we should just be eating more of those. So there's no resistance there. Farmers are very keen to look for alternative crops and better, higher value markets as well. So if we can encourage farmers to produce more beans, which they would want to do, then um, then there's a really big opportunity. For example, rotationally, about twenty percent of the arable area in the UK could, in theory be put down to beans or peas at the moment it's less than five percent so there's a significant opportunity to increase pulse cropping and the and the harvested benefit that we get from those pulses and also the benefit that we get in terms of nitrogen usage so it's a massive opportunity the sticking point is really that we need to eat them (laughs) and and so for hobmadod the whole aim is kind of just telling that story about them as a food crop, uh, sharing recipes, encouraging people to get excited about what is, you know, it's a very humble kind of crop. It's It, it takes a bit of work to cook and to, to spice and to season, but they are absolutely delicious. And what's your favourite fava bean recipe? The, one of the big discoveries that we made is that the best falafel in the world aren't made with chickpeas. They're made with fava beans. Um, they're generally called tamea because they're from Egypt. And they are incredible. So you soak split fava beans, mince them quite coarsely, put loads and loads of herbs and spices in, and then just just cook them, bake them or fry them. And they're so good. And it's so simple. <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, is, that, is, that, is that recipe on your website? It is. Yeah, Definitely. it is on our website, yeah. Because uh, I've been stuck in the chickpea uh, in the chickpea uh, mindset. So I'm definitely going to have to try, try those out. And... Um, what about making veggie burgers? Because you see all of these um, processed, um, incredible meat, uh, sort of meat substitutes. Is there a way of taking that um, falafel recipe and turning it into a sort of mass bean veggie bean burger? Or maybe you're doing that already? So we're not doing that, but people are doing those sorts of things. And I think there's the sort of, since we began working with the bean in the UK, and it's not just it's not just us, but it, there has been a, a, a real significant increase in interest in fava beans as a as a crop that can be used in those kind of products. And for those sorts of things, generally speaking, the beans are fractionated; they're broken down into different elements: protein and starches and fiber. And those are then recombined in order to make those those sort of meat alternatives. We, we don't really do any of that. We think that I mean, nutritionally, the best way to eat a pulse is to eat it in the way that it comes. And I know that's not going to suit everyone, but that is the way that you get the best nutritional benefit from it. But yeah, they can be used for that. And they are, they're fractionated usually by cyclone. So they go into what looks like a giant hoover or Dyson. You've got a spun round and as things, as things fall out by weight, you can get different kind of stratification of protein. 
Brilliant. And the customer, your customers, um, be good to understand. Are you selling to restaurants, businesses, wholesalers, or are you doing all direct to consumer? In, in so you're sort of you're you're working on the education of the British public to eat more beans, and then how are you actually getting the beans and accessing that market? Yeah, so that's right. So we do a lot of advocacy work. We're much noisier than our turnover might indicate in terms of getting the message out there and talking to people. And we sell through all of those channels, as it were. So we do have a website and we sell online and that's about a third of our turnover. But we also sell to to restaurants. We sell into independent retailers. We sell into distributors that then supply other shops. And we also sell into manufacturing. So we do supply kind of volumes of beans into some of those businesses that are making things like the veggie burgers. Yeah, and I'm quite lazy with my uh, beans and pulses quite often. And I quite like to just sort of chuck a tin of lentils in as I'm finishing cooking and because I haven't really got round to cooking them myself from dry is that are you tinning or do you think that's the heresy putting things in a tin we we do have things in a tin because we know there are lots of people like you Bruce that are never gonna <laughs> soak <laughs> their beans. but we do it we do it kind of through gritted teeth because <laughs> the interesting thing is it is really really convenient but inside your your can of beans you'll usually be getting 70 or 80 grams of dried pulses that are then rehydrated through the cooking process. Obviously, there's quite a lot of embodied energy in that process. And actually, it's probably more efficient for you to buy a half kilo pack, pressure cook it all at once, and then freeze it in batches so that you can then remember to take a bag out of the freezer or a tub out of the freezer and drop it into your into your curry at the last minute, as it were. Yes, I definitely need to do that. I need to get educated on the bean side of things. And um, what is success going to look like? I sort of, I, I'm, I'm guessing... 20% of British land uh, planted in various beans. But what's the sort of shorter term aim in terms of what does success look like for Hodmadod? So, I mean, success is really the, about changing this narrative around not just pulses, but where they fit into crop rotations and how we think differently about how our food is grown. And, and, and beans are a really good entry point for that conversation with people. We would like to see, you know, for example, we've always worked with a research farm you know, for the last 20 years, in fact, that has developed and um, researched agroforestry systems. So this is growing crops between rows of trees. So you've got annuals and those perennial tree crops growing together. And that does a lot of the nutrient cycling work. Those trees are drawing up things like the potassium and the phosphorus, dropping it down onto the cropping area and making it available to short-rooted annual crops that wouldn't otherwise be able to access it. So we would like to see beans fitting into much more complex cropping systems that do all the things that the government are talking about, like the creation of public goods, for example, um, drawing carbon down, creating space for wildlife, all that kind of thing, but are also producing all sorts of, of products. So food, obviously, but there's an opportunity to be growing more in the way of um, timber for building materials, and that is a fantastic way of locking carbon up if you grow a tree, you've got all that above ground carbon, eventually it will die or it might catch fire. If you put it into a house that's got a hundred year life, then you've locked that carbon away. And that is an absolutely amazing thing to be doing. And we can be doing more of that. But also uh, fiber, you know, there's things like hemp and nettles that can be used to produce fibers that can not only be used to make fabrics and clothing, but also be used to in constructional uh, as a constructional material. And there's an opportunity to be growing more pharmaceutical products on farms organically, you know, through organic means in terms of chemistry and i think there's 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 so much more we could do by thinking completely differently about the farm system and moving away from this idea of monocultures grown for a commodity market 
And what do you think is the biggest hurdle to getting there? I mean, now that we're out of Europe, we're sort of not necessarily in the common agricultural policy. Is that is that hurdle gone now? Or what do you, what do you think is the main barrier for pushing forward with this new way of thinking about land use? You know, I think there was a, amongst many, there was a, a great deal of optimism about the opportunity that Brexit presented in terms of completely reformulating our agriculture policy. And I think Michael Gove was was... You know, he was quite exciting in what he was planning and thinking about. I think as time has gone on, it's looked less and less likely that those radical ideas will actually be, de- be delivered and that we'll end up with something that's probably not too dissimilar to CAP in many respects. And there are big openings in carbon trading, which is, to my mind, it's simply another commodity that farmers will end up being stuck in that will be traded on the futures market. And, and I don't really know, you know, we need to we need to achieve net zero. That's clear. But that applies to the whole economy. The problem is, I think, for farmers is that they're in a position to go beyond zero quite easily because they've got soil. They've got this amazing sponge for carbon. The problem with them selling too much of that carbon is that they will then find themselves stuck as carbon farmers rather than as food, fuel and fibre and uh, public good farmers. And carbon is a really reductive metric. It measures one thing really, really well, but we face a connected set of crises that are linked, but are not necessarily the same and don't necessarily have the same answers. So chronic ill health as a result of poor diet would be one example. Biodiversity loss would be another. You know, in my lifetime, 40 percent biodiversity loss in the UK. I mean, that's extraordinary. Um, We need to address that as well. And, um, you know, these are complicated questions that market mechanisms are not necessarily very good at addressing. And we kind of need well thought out, connected policy in place. So we need DEFRA talking to Department of Health. We need Department of Health talking to education. And that at the moment, that doesn't seem to be happening in the way that it needs to in order to affect system change. No, absolutely. And we sort of moved this sort of view of farmers of they're only able to do one thing so they're either a dairy farmer or a wheat farmer or a carbon farmer or a pig farmer and actually 40 50 years ago they did a bit of everything and it was a diverse way of producing food but now it seems to be you can only be a chicken farmer and then carbon farming is likely to go in the same direction which is rewild everything and become a carbon fiber when actually a lot of these things need to and can happen symbiotically yeah, I think I think that idea of you know regenerative farming uh, or agroecological farming, farming that works kind of in sympathy with the wider world, but does produce all of these goods at the end of it. Some of which are tangible, and some of which are intangible. I think we need to be doing a lot more work on that. And farmers have this amazing skills base. You know, they're they're crop scientists, they're soil scientists, they're engineers. You know, they can do all of these different things. And and yet farming over the last 70 years through that process of commodification has become very reductive. So as you say, you're either a chicken farmer or a beef farmer or a, or an arable farmer, and you very rarely are doing all of those things anymore. And our listeners want to get to net zero. I think they do. That's why they listen to the podcast or they want to do the right thing environmentally. Why does, why is, why does the bean matter for listeners who are trying to reduce their carbon impact? Why should they care about beans? I think, I mean, on the one hand, there's the global impact of meat, which we do eat an awful lot of in the UK. And it's a complex impact that includes deforestation um, and it includes, you know, ghost acres. There's an estimate from the WWF 
that the UK requires an area larger than the size of Yorkshire uh, producing soya in order to keep pigs and chickens fed in the UK. And we don't really think about that, that footprint. You know, there are, we eat in the UK extraordinarily. We eat a billion chickens a year. Now, in the, with the best will in the world and the most regenerative, sustainable system of farming, we're not going to be able to produce a billion chickens a year. So we do need to address where that food is coming from. Beans play a really important role dietary-wise in replacing some of that meat. And, you know, that's not necessarily suggesting everyone should become vegetarian or vegan at all. But it's it's about eating less meat, eating better meat, and using beans as they do in the Mediterranean. Where, and in fact, most global cuisines, actually, where you use a little bit of meat, you use it quite sparingly in a dish that's that's bean-based. And that flavour spreads through the whole thing. And, and, and we see that a lot with things like chorizo and things in... in in Spain or with hams and you know there are all sorts of ways of stretching meat and by reducing meat consumption we can you know significantly affect our impact on the global environment more to the point also beans themselves are just fantastically positive in terms of building soil carbon and soil organic matter uh, reduce water usage compared to livestock all sorts of other wonderful things so for the listeners, we're going to do one thing um, to help you succeed on your mission. What, w- what would it be? Should they go out and buy beans? Should they sing about beans? Should they get to your website? What's the, what's the key thing that our listeners can do to, to help you on your mission? Well, I think now you've suggested that they should all be singing about beans. I'd love that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think eating beans, or, or more broadly, looking at their plate and asking questions about everything that's on it. So I think when we go to a restaurant, I mean, I'm guilty of this as anyone. I'll often think about where the vegetables or the meat have come from, but I rarely would question, I'd rarely ask a waiter, you know, where did this rice come from? I just just wouldn't even think about it. And I think just looking at your plate and thinking about where everything might have come from is a good starting point. Brilliant. And um, what's coming up in the next 12 months that you're most excited about? What should listeners be uh, looking out for? Uh, We've got a whole host of, of new crops and you know, we're working on for this year to broaden that diverse rotation. Uh, it's our birthday. We're 10 years old, which is extraordinary oh, this year. Congratulations. So, so congratulations. I don't know what we'll do, some sort of party. And um, I, think the thing that, um, I think the thing that we're really working on this year is there are a lot and an increasing number of farmers who are thinking regeneratively and changing the way that they farm. And there are events, there's an event called Groundswell, which is all about farmers that aren't tilling the soil so much and it's extraordinary how this idea has caught fire amongst the farming community and there are youtubes of you know it's amazing but in order for that to work those farmers need an alternative route to market away from commodity and what we need to foster is a generation of agroecological retailers retailers that provide the connection between the consumer the home cook the chef and the farmer in a really positive and reinforcing way so that we can create kind of new sustainable relationships, trading relationships that are not just transactional, that are relational, that you buy something because it comes from somewhere and you know something about it and you can take responsibility for its impact in some way. So I think encouraging retail to really look at changing its approach to to supply and perhaps moving away from linear models which have the farmer at one end and then some gatekeepers of value and information along the way to the consumer and beginning to think more about networks of supply where you can have flows of information and knowledge and even value going in all sorts of different directions simultaneously 
And that's quite interesting because that's 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 where you started with the fava beans and the postcard because you had this network of information saying, here's the product, what do you think about it? Um, and you were getting that information back straight from the consumer, whereas if you'd put them onto the shelves of a supermarket, um, you would have got a order back for another two tons or you would have been told they never sold and go away. Exactly that. I mean, and I think I think that's often the question with you go into the supermarket and it's amazing. It, there's a there's a fantastic appearance of abundance. But actually, there were probably really only in terms of plants, there's probably only five or six crops that are really present in there. And they're the ones that feed the whole world. And um, and we could we could really transform that and, and put real diversity into those shops. And are there any agro ecological retailers out there or is that something that is starting to be looked at it's mainly online at the moment i think online obviously provides a very effective route uh, and a very easy way of making that communication happen but there are bricks and mortar retailers as well there's a fantastic business called locavore in scotland uh, which is a chain of small convenience and sort of supermarkets which does exactly what i've described in terms of its connection with farm and with with primary production there are online businesses. I think you could probably put people like Riverford and Abel and Cole into that into that box. And then there are meat businesses like Piper's Farm in the West Country and the Ethical Butcher. Uh, and then there are smaller businesses like growing communities in London based in Hackney that, that both grow in London, but also have connections with farmers around the edge of London. So I think it's an emerging thing, but it's not very mainstream at the moment. And, and you know, we need you need to be able to walk into your local retailer and, and be able to make that connection which and it needs to be affordable and accessible to everyone i mean that is also critical it really is it's such an interesting and it's sort of just listening to you talk is amazing because you're sort of very much around educating people around beans and pulses and uh, grains but actually just within the context of the wider framework of the um, farm ecology and, and the environment as well it's 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 very re- refreshing and it's been amazing to have you on the uh, show just uh, before you go two things the first thing is we have the first mile planet saver hall of fame where we invite our learned guests to leave something and we're going to do a review of the hall of fame at some point in the future but if you were going to leave one thing for future generations in our Hall of Fame, what would it be? I think I'd better leave a bean, hadn't I? <laughs> a little Excellent. I'm so pleased you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Not a tin of beans, a bean. No, just a, just a little bean um, full of all that promise of, of growth and nutrition. And um, the second thing is how do our guests and lists, or not our guests, how do our listeners, if you don't know where to find you, you're in trouble, how do our listeners find you? Uh, they can just, I mean, probably the easiest thing is just to Google our name, Hodmedod, and they'll find us very, very quickly. It's quite a unique name. Can you spell it for us? H-O-D-M-E-D-O-D-S. That will that will find us. Dot com. Indeed so. Excellent. Josiah, it's absolutely fantastic having you as a guest on 050. Thank you so much. Fascinating subject. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. It's a pleasure. I'm Bruce Bradley and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.